I'm Debbie Draper from the Clinical Excellence Commission and I'm pleased you can join us for this four-part series with George Duros. This podcast is one of a four-part series on listening up for safety. And in this seg segment, on building an understanding around error, this conversation includes an introduction into the human factors and George's journey in understanding the importance of human factors science to complement his medical training. George talks about the limitations of clinical knowledge to understand clinical errors and emphasizes the importance of engaging with safety sciences in terms of improving and enhancing the role of M&Ms in supporting changes and enhancing staff capacity to make good decisions. He uses practical examples from both healthcare and manufacturing industries to explain how systems can be set up to support and enhance better and safer decision making. In terms of your, so your experience with simulation, it's, it's an, is, is that what sparked you initially in terms of learning more about um, human factors and, and how it relates to your work in, and your experiences of M&Ms? I, well, my simulation stuff, like most medicine, um, started off with here's a dummy, do some chest compressions, and then here's how to do a couple of procedures. My interest in human factors actually came another way. When I started working at the coroner's court, um, uh, basically I got employed because I work in a tertiary centre, an urgent care centre, and do retrieval medicine. I had a broad clinical uh, experience, and that's what they wanted there. They've also got mm. geriatricians, paediatricians, people who, who have got a, a broad experience so they can bring their clinical knowledge uh, uh, to cases. I sort of realised that that wasn't enough. Um, mm. And so I went and did a safer care incident investigation uh, program. Um, and while that was good, it was all just wedged into one day and I could sense there was just so much more there. So I started sniffing around uh, incident investigation and you, you come across certain uh, names in the literature, Sydney Deck, uh, being one, um, and in the safety sciences, Rasmussen, Cook, Holnagel. And then I ended up doing a course through Monash Uni on clinical human factors. Uh, and that's when it all sort of started uh, coming together. And you sort of realised how in, in medicine, and particularly in the safety sphere, medicine is is just looking at, at the medical journals and then not actually looking at the safety journals. Um, mm. And we tend to grasp grasp phrases, uh, and we think we know what it means. Um, but we, where if if you actually go to the base literature where it all came from, it's so uh, much de uh, further developed. Um, a little bit like if you think of what simulation was like. 20 years ago compared to what simulation is now, um, that's um, how far behind we are in, in all manner of things um, because we've just been you know, reading our own literature and um, you know, navel gazing a little bit rather than actually engaging with the, uh, with the, with the safety sciences. Um, but that's how I sort of started getting into it. And then um, I got a sabbatical in, at Safer Care Victoria uh, for six months to, uh, with the goal of trying to come up with an M&M &M process. Unlike your process, there wasn't 100 people <laughs> around. It was just me at a desk, um, which in a way was good because I just ended up going down uh, rabbit holes um, rather than needing to convince you know 100 people to go down the rabbit hole. And you, you end up coming up with some interesting stuff uh, when you do it that way. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you were getting a sense that in your journey that 
your medical training really wasn't enough. And oh, what, what was yeah. what was getting what was giving you that that sense that it wasn't enough? What were some of the things that were telling you you needed to develop, you know, this safety pathway? Um, yeah, it was just that, you know, if you think about every M&M you've ever been to in the last 20 years, what's actually changed? And it's nothing. The same errors keep on happening over and over again. Um, and, you know, the when the take-home message is, can everyone please be more aware? Uh, please remember don't uh, not to forget and don't forget to remember. Uh, you know, it, it just didn't seem like it was going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's uh, why I was delving into it. And, and also with, you know, what you're doing with the, the coroners, you know, you don't want to, uh, adversely judge someone. Um, and the other thing I noticed is that there was sort of, there's these silos of patient safety. You've got, uh, you know, the hospital's doing its thing, um, you know, the formal investigation, then you've got M&M doing their thing, then you've got Safer Care doing its thing, then you've got the coroner's doing its thing. And all these silos are sort of speaking at each other and no one's actually speaking with each other. Um, and I sort of thought there's got to be a way to try and get all of this together um, and bring in the safety sciences as well. I've got to, I've got to take home um, to, to gauge how effective you are at the end of your M&M. And this is a, a, a great quote. Um, Learning implies changing what's changed mm-hmm. um, so if you think you've done something um, you, you've actually achieved uh, some change uh, just stop and think what it is was it literally um, a change to your system or have you just told people to try harder because if that's all you've done you've done nothing um, and sometimes the cause of the problem and the solution of the problem uh, can be different. Um, and I, I can give a, an example of one that, that we had, and this is the aortic dissection again. Um, uh, the a, you know, safety department concluded again, cognitive bias, redo the training program. If you actually speak to this, this is a patient who had a known aortic root dilation that the cardiologist had told, you know, you uh, if you get chest pain, go to the hospital, tell them you've got this. Um, and she dutifully did. She told the ambulance officer, she told the triage nurse, she told the registrar. Um, and she got two troponins, got sent home. She actually came back a second time uh, and again told an ambulance officer, told a triage nurse and told a, a, a doctor. And it was only the second doctor that actually saw she looked uh, unwell um, and ended up being a, an aortic dissection. And um, everybody she told she had aortic dilation wrote it down but they didn't actually think of it like an aortic aneurysm. Uh, It didn't have the cognitive resonance. And when we looked back at the aortic dissections that we'd missed, uh, 40% of them over the last 15 years had either aortic root dilatation or aortic uh, dilation as a risk factor. And that phrase isn't actually in the, uh, um, or the, uh, the teaching um, in those specific words. Um, it's something that the cardiologists monitor as a precursor to an aneurysm, but they don't call it an aneurysm because technically it's not, and they don't want to scare their patients and have their patients Google it. Uh, and so the information was given, it wasn't understood by multiple parties. Uh, now, 
you could say we need an education campaign. Um, education doesn't work that well because of massive staff turnover. What we decided to do uh, was based on something I saw that was happening in, in Canada, where for some reason they were missing a lot of febrile neutropenics. They'd go, the, the oncologist say, go to the emergency department, tell them you've got cancer, tell them that you've got a temperature, they'll fix it. Uh, and these patients would just die of febrile neutropenic sepsis in the waiting room. So the oncologist came up with a little fever card and they would present it and that card would say, this could be an oncological emergency. Please notify the consultant, this could be febrile neutropenia. Um, and I uh, and so I was speaking to the cardiologist, what we decided to do was a multi-tiered approach. One, put an alert on uh, Cerna, all the patients that they're actually uh, keeping an eye on all their orders for. Um, Another option is a medical alert bracelet, but also a little card that says this patient has been instructed to come to the hospital if they've got sudden onset chest pain. This could be an acute aortic syndrome. Please notify the consultant and get a CTA. Um, now, this card can be presented to an ambulance officer, to a triage nurse, to a doctor, and a little bit like the little flashing light in your mirror, it's just a nudge to help you mm. do the right thing, um, where you accept that people may not uh, have the knowledge to put things together, but if you you know give them a little flashing light, they'll do the right thing. Absolutely. Just a really good example in terms of a, a creative solution, which, you know, generally we do tend to go down the path of training. And, and as you pointed out there, that is limited, um, whereas this is much more... Um, innovative in a sense where you're able to give people that reminder um, and, and it isn't the expectation that they're going to remember everything about every single condition. Mm, mm. We're here to support them and give them those nudges. And interestingly, the cardiologist sort of noted this would be back in the days when ca uh, cardiology patients would have a little book with them, uh, which would have all their problems and an ECG written in them. They disappeared about 10 years ago when the electronic medical record came came about. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but the, the cardiologist just jumped on the, the idea because it reminded them of something that used to be very, very helpful that we just lost uh, when the electronic medical record came in. Um, and so one of them just sort of said it was actually her patient. She's, I'm starting this tomorrow. Um, so uh, it, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's still untested, but um, a little bit like reach where you are uh, getting the patient to help make the diagnosis. Um, this is the same sort of concept. Absolutely. And they've become partners in their care and yeah. they're able to really, you know, support the information that's needed to make good decisions about their diagnosis. And um, yeah, that's really enabling them to be part of yeah. the conversation. So with this question, um, learning involves changing what's changed. There's a change. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's recognising that sometimes we do lose good things that have worked in the past because of new innovations um, that we think will improve things, but sometimes create gaps, don't they? Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a saying, um, you know, in a, in a complex uh, system, nothing remains solved forever. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you introduce big changes like EMR. Mm. Yeah, thanks for that. That's a really good example and really gives it, you know, that um, opportunity to engage with with the system and to really support and enhance um, staff's capacity to be able to make 
good decisions. Yeah, that's a good. And, and involve the patient as well. Yeah, uh, basically, you want to change your your uh, system so it sets your staff up for success. Yeah, yeah, and quite often we we do more of the opposite, don't we? We're setting them up for failure when. Yeah, 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 yeah. and then blaming them for failure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's around how to to re-engineer that and and ensure that they're supported and the system you know, enables their success rather yeah. than they feel quite paralyzed in a very complex system. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. again, using the car analogy, you are far safer now, I'm sure, in the whatever car you've got now than the car you had 20 years ago. That's not because you as an individual have become a better driver. Um, mm. It's uh, you and your car together are safer. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a really good example when I think about it um, and you've, because we've talked about this before, um, where you feel that in, as a driver, you're more empowered because you know that there are better systems in place, um, you know, to support you and, and to make you safer. Yeah, and you're getting, um, uh, well, the, yeah, the solution to, trend, to complexity is transparency having yeah. the right information at the right time to make the right decision, whether it's the flashing light in your side mirror, whether it's your reversing camera, um, these things, um, if, they're, if they're just, if you put them in your workflow, um, for example, every time you put your car in reverse, the reversing camera automatically uh, goes on and it's right in your field of vision. If you had to do 27 clicks and tap-ons and, you know, right clicks and all that sort of stuff, you wouldn't do it. Mm. Um, so you've got to, you know, uh, and this is, again, just the way that we unfortunately think. We um, uh, don't analyse how people work to begin with before we change the system to, to, to put in our, our improvements. Um, you've got to make it, um, you know, easier to do the right thing. Um, if if people have to go out of their way to to do the right thing and they're under time pressure, they're not going to do the right thing. Yeah, yeah. The solutions really have to be accessible and mm. connected to the way they work. Yeah. Right now, you know, a lot of the solutions and the and the recommendations for change are, there's a disconnect, isn't there, with how yeah. they're working. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to this podcast with Dr. George Duros on Listening Up for Safety. I hope you enjoyed it. Please note this is one of a four-part series and I hope you listen to the other three segments as Dr. George Duros takes us on a journey exploring his passion for patient safety and talks about how human factor science has supported his work in improving M&Ms. This four-part series includes conversations around the importance of building an understanding around error and moving up from speaking up for safety to listening up for safety to enable learning from clinicians who are doing the work and understand the system firsthand. I hope you enjoy the remainder of the series. I'm Debbie Draby from the Clinical Excellence Commission and I'm pleased that you can join us in this conversation with senior leaders um, as they explore the guiding principles of effective morbidity and mortality meetings in action. This podcast series has been developed to explore the experiences and insights from leading M&M meetings. Look out for more podcasts as we continue this conversation 
with clinicians as they share their journey and learning. I hope you find it useful. And if you'd like to contribute to this conversation, please let me know. Thank you.